0: This episode of Trapital is brought to you by Blog Access One-on-One. Every Sunday, Blog Access One-on-One speaks on sports and other vital topics. Hear in-depth discussions that break down recent and new sports stories. Listen and subscribe to Blog Access One-on-One wherever you listen to podcasts or on YouTube by searching Blog Access One-on-One. You can also follow them on TikTok, Instagram, and on Twitter by searching Blog Access One-on-One too. I
1: wanted to tell the story through characters, through people, not just, you know, you can run down the discography of all the amazing Atlanta musicians, right? You can go through the label history, read the reviews, but I always want to sort of pull back, like, who's behind these people? Who's behind that person? So that's why I think, you know, mothers were huge, fathers, you know, friends, people who were around these artists growing up. I wanted them to be human characters, and I wanted the side characters to be as big of a part as the famous people, because I think they're as crucial to the equation.
0: Hey, welcome to the Trapital podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Today's guest is Joe Coscarelli. He's the author of Rap Capital, an Atlanta story, and he's a culture reporter at the New York Times. And this book that he wrote, Rap Capital, I cannot recommend it enough. If you listen to this podcast, if you read the newsletter, if you watch any of the clips from our conversations or any of the posts on social media, this book is made for you. It's a street-level epic about the most consequential music culture today, Atlanta rap. Joe put so much thought and care into how the book came together and tying everything from the Atlanta murders that happened decades ago and how that shaped the rap culture and the broader culture for black folks in Atlanta that we see today. And how that led to someone like Lil Baby, how that led to someone like Coach K having such an influence over hip hop music and the culture for decades now. This book was a great opportunity as well to have a trip down memory lane. A lot of us understand how influential Atlanta has been, but it was great to have it be told from a unique way. We also talked about broader trends happening in the streaming era right now in music, what a movie or film or TV show adaptation could look like for Rap Capital and more. Here's our conversation. Hope you enjoy it. All right, today we have Joe Coscarelli, the author of Rap Capital, An Atlanta Story, and read the book, really enjoyed it. And I got to ask because I was going through the synopsis and you said this was four years in the making. And I got to imagine with a book like this, there was some point when things started to click in that four-year process. When did you feel like things were coming together for you?
1: So I knew that there was a book in this stuff, because I had done a handful of stories through my day job at the New York Times about Atlanta. I started this beat in late 2014. So, you know, my first couple of years on the job, streaming was really taking over and specifically rap music and streaming. So I just found myself over and over again talking to the same group of people, right? I did a Migos story, did a QC story that featured... Little Baby, one of his first interviews. I wrote about Drew Finling, who's a lawyer in the book that's all over the news these days in various capacities. So I knew from those stories that there was something here, but I didn't know what it was going to be. I knew I wanted to not just tell a history, but follow characters in real time as they tried to make it. That's something I always want to do in my work. You know, So my favorite art ever is like Hoop Dreams or a music documentary like Dig, which follows two bands across... A long period of time, one of them makes it, one of them doesn't make it. That's always what I want to bring to my reporting is this idea of a journey, right? And it doesn't even matter what the destination is, but following specifically artists and musicians as they're trying to make something out of their lives, that to me is just a timeless tale, right? Of ambition and dreams. And so I knew I had a handful of characters that I wanted to go on this trip with, but I didn't really know how it tied into the broader story of Atlanta until a real marathon brunch interview with Lil baby's mother, uh, LaShawn. He was, you know, he and I had a rapport at that point. I'd interviewed him a few times. I didn't talk to a lot of people around him uh, and he was kind enough to set me up directly with his mom. And, you know, we sat down at a brunch place outside of Atlanta and, you know, she said, I asked him, I asked Dominique, her son, like, what do I tell him? And, and he told her, tell him everything. And she really did. Her whole life story became part of the book, especially the foundation of the book and, in the first part. And she had such an incredible life on her own. You know, I hope she writes a memoir someday. But when I learned really that she had been friends in school with an early victim of the Atlanta child murders, which were happening in on the west side of Atlanta in, in the late 70s, early 80s, that she had a first hand relationship to that historical event that I feel like really left its mark on the city. And she was open. She said it sort of affected the kind of mother that she became, and I think ultimately helped set Dominique little baby on his path and all of that could be traced to like something she went through as a kid that also spoke more broadly to Atlanta and the way it has developed socially politically culturally especially black atlanta over the last 40 50 years so that was a real breakthrough moment for me and I knew that I could start with her story which in many ways was also the story of atlanta in the last you know half a century
0: and in reading that first piece too I could see how much care and thought was put into it from your perspective of going through what happened with those murders and then how that traces directly to someone like Lil Baby because it's hard to tell the story of Atlanta hip-hop without doing all of that. And that's something that I think is often missing with so much of the discussion about Atlanta's run, which is why I feel like your book does stand as its own and is able to have a unique voice and perspective on this.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, I wanted to tell the story through characters, right? Through people, not just, you know... You can run down the discography of all the amazing Atlanta musicians, right? You can go through the label history, read the reviews. But I always want to sort of pull back, like, who's behind these people? Who's behind that person? You know, so that's why I think, you know, mothers were huge, fathers, you know, friends, people who are around these artists growing up. I wanted them to be human characters. And I wanted the side characters to be as big of a part as the famous people, because I think they're as crucial to the equation.
0: And of course, Lil Baby is one of the central characters. Another one is Coach K, who's one of the folks leading up quality control music. Why was it important for him to be a central character in this too?
1: So Coach K is amazing because you can tell basically the last 30 years of rap music only through his career, right? When I said I wanted to be able to trace characters back through the years to artists and eras, like Coach has seen it all, right? This is a man who was passing out church fans to promote Pastor Troy and the congregation in the mid nineties. Then he goes from that to representing all these producers who were, you know, crucial to founding the trap sound, someone like drama boy. And then he's working with young Jeezy, right. As the snowman mythology takes over and, you know, Def Jam South and the explosion of trap music on a national scale. Coaches behind that, right? You know, there's a moment I talk about in the book where they put the commercial on the radio, right? And Atlanta when the Jeezy's mixtapes Trap or Die are coming out, right? And it's all traps closed today, like national holiday. You know, like these are the things that the coach was cooking up behind the scenes. Then he works with Gucci Man, right, who was blood rivals with Jeezy. And then that brings you up to the present day. And in 2013, he and P, his partner, Pierre Thomas, they found quality control. And then they have Migos, right? And then they have Lil Yachty. And then they have Lil Baby. And through Coach K, you could talk about every single one of those careers And so many more that he was on the periphery of, even if he wasn't the main executive or manager involved. So I just think, you know, there's nobody more crucial to that ecosystem at this moment and through the last couple of decades than Kevin Lee, Coach K.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that stands out about their run too, is that it wasn't just one artist and they faded and rose with that artist. I think that's what we've seen a lot in the streaming era, frankly, from a lot of the record labels that have rose up they had the runs and even when one star started to fade from a group that was the hottest group in the moment, they had others that came through and you're seeing that infrastructure. And I feel like that's one thing that sets them apart from a lot of the others at this moment
1: totally for them it's all about artist development right like i remember being around them in the office you know in late 2017 and they were talking about whether they should have gone after bad baby you know the catch me outside girl and like they would see little things pop up and think like oh should we get in on that viral moment and then they would be like no that's not what we do we build artists we build careers we build brands And something that's so special about quality control and why they were able to, you know, be the backbone of this book is because they are invested in that sort of old school Motown-esque record business thing of, I'm going to pluck someone who might not even think they're a musician and we're going to believe in them and we're going to back them and we're going to build it from the ground up, right? And we're going to build it Atlanta first, whereas so much in the viral marketing streaming world of today is going top down, right? It's a TikTok hit, then it's a major label deal. And this person's probably never even played a show before. They're still very invested in the grassroots bottom-up approach. And I think that's worked for them so many times now that the playbook is, you know, you can't deny it.
0: Yeah, and I think that also echoes something that I've seen you talk about even outside of the book as well, just some of the challenges that a lot of the artists and labels have right now in terms of now that the pandemic has at least in this stage that we're in right now, there's still some lasting effects in terms of how that's shaping the charts, how that's shaping how music's released. What have you been seeing there from that perspective?
1: I mean, you know, a lot of people have been writing this year, yourself included, about the sort of stagnancy of the charts, how, you know, there aren't a lot of new breakout hits, especially in rap music, which had been so dominant for the last decade, essentially, as things started to move online and towards streaming. And I think you're right that a lot of that is pandemic hangover, right? Like people were not outside like they used to be. Artists were not sort of feeling that energy, that creative energy they were creating often like in a little bubble. I'm sure you get projects like a Beyonce's Renaissance that comes out of that pandemic moment and maybe speaks to some people's hopes and dreams for what the next few years will be a little freer, but you don't have any chance for that sort of grassroots development, right? So we saw a lot of things come off of TikTok, but as I was getting at, like those people, they haven't had the opportunity to touch their fans, right? To speak to the sort of groundswell of support. So you get a lot of things that feel fleeting and then you have something massive, right? Bad Bunny or like Morgan Wallen that's just like lodged up there at the top of the charts. Because I think those guys had a fully formed thing going into the pandemic and were able to ride it through. You know, when you think about a, a lot of rap, especially regionally, that's bubbling now, there's a lot of drill, right? Like you think of the stuff coming out of Brooklyn and the Bronx and that sound traveling all over the country. And I think, you know, since Pop Smoke, we haven't really had a sort of mainstream emissary for that sound. And it is such a local, such a hyper local, such an underground phenomenon that you haven't really had someone translate it for the mainstream you know maybe that's going to be ice spice maybe that's going to be 5e04 and like you know maybe it's going to be someone younger but i think we're still waiting right for what that next wave especially in rap is going to be you see the sort of sun maybe setting on the trap era that's described in the book and the rise of drill as the default of what a rap song sounds like but again that hasn't really crossed over quite yet
0: yeah, it's been fascinating just to see how the streaming era has shaped things specifically with how much you focused on it in the book. And with a topic like Atlanta hip hop, there are likely so many sectors that you could have dove in on. And of course, Little Baby being a central figure did lend itself to the streaming era. But how did you decide which era to focus on? Because there's so many time spans that you probably could have done an equally deep dive on.
1: I always knew I wanted to tell a contemporary story, right? Like I'm more of a reporter than I am a historian. So I'm not a musicologist. I'm not a music critic. You know, I've never really written criticism in terms of album reviews or show reviews. Things like that. So I knew I wanted to be able to witness as much as I could firsthand and write about that because that's what I love to do in my work, getting back to this idea of, you know, being a fly on the wall for someone's journey, for someone's rise, for someone's fall, even. So it was always going to be contemporary, right? And I feel like you have to tell a little bit of the history, right? You have to talk about Freaknik, you have to talk about Outkast and the Dungeon Family and LaFace Records and So So Deaf to be able to get to this moment. But I think. For me, like, I'm not someone who writes about music nostalgically. Sure, I love the stuff I grew up on, but I'd rather look forwards than backwards. And I think character wise, I just wanna stay with the cutting edge, right? I wanna see what's next. I wanna see who's changing things, who's, you know, who's moving things forward. And that's just what I seek out in my life and in my job. So I think it was always gonna be as
0: contemporary as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that streaming also allowed us to see more growth from the areas that I think in a lot of ways were a bit held back from gatekeepers controlling everything. And I think Atlanta's a perfect example of that. Even though they had the massive rise, you know, 90s, early 2000s, it went to another level this past decade.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, that sort of in-between time, right? When you think about post-Napster and file sharing, post CD crash in the early 2000s but pre-streaming like a lot of what became the go-to playbook for streaming was happening in the underground mixtape scene especially in atlanta and in the south and you think of things like dat piff or you know sites like that where free mixtapes were coming out and it was all about quantity right in a way that really set these artists for the streaming era right you think of lil wayne's mixtape run gucci's mixtape run and then future's mixtape run it was just about music, 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 music. And so Migos sort of got in at the tail end of that and they release, you know, whatever it is, five, seven, 10 mixtapes before they put out a proper debut album. And then when they finally hit with something like Culture, their second proper full length, the world had finally caught up to them and the rest of the Atlanta artists. And yet there's this whole group in between that gets left behind right like i'd love to read a book about travis porter and rich kids and you know these atlanta rappers who were really like laying the groundwork for a lot of this even like a Rocco or you know early career future like these guys i think if they would have come out once spotify was as big as it is now they would have been huge national and international stars and instead they sort of get caught in this in-between zone so you know i think i love to see when art lines up with the technology of the moment and i think these Atlanta
0: rappers were in the perfect place at the perfect time to take advantage of that explosion. Yeah, I agree. And then even reading it too, and thinking about this conversation we're having, so much of you framing this as your reporter, you're capturing what's happening contemporary. And given the insights and the things that people are sharing with you, the amount of trust that you were needed to develop with them. And we talked a lot about the aspect of race and how that plays in. How did you navigate that yourself as a white man and trying to tell this black story and making sure that you're capturing it in the best way possible?
1: Yeah. You know, obviously I thought about this a lot in the reporting and the conception of the book, certainly in the writing and the editing, like, I think the job of any journalist, right, is to be like a respectful, humble, open-minded guest in other people's worlds, right? And to be well aware of what you know and what you don't know. Like that goes for when I'm interviewing a female artist, a trans songwriter, a reggaeton star. I think like to navigate spaces where you're not an insider, like it's best to come prepared and engaged and curious like i did my research i knew what i was talking about to the extent that i could but i also was eager to like defer to people who are the experts right i made sure that everyone from artists to managers family members like They knew that I wanted to take whatever platform I had with the book and with my work at the New York Times and sort of take their work seriously to shine a light on it and recognize it as important as it is, right? This cultural product that has this immense influence and impact. So I wanted to really preserve these moments to the best of my ability for the history books. And I think that my subjects got that right away. You know, I don't think it took a lot of time for them to spend with me to see that I was really dedicated in that mission, that I was going to be respectful of their time and space interested in the work that they were doing and the lives they were living. And then like your credibility travels, right? One person can vouch for you with another, you know, with a collaborator, with a family member. And I just wanted to just defer to them and their experiences. And I think I took that with me in the writing of the book. You know, of course, there's analysis, there's observation, but I really wanted people to speak for themselves. The book is very quote heavy. I really wanted to capture people as they are, do an accurate portrayal of what it is they've been through. Hopefully, I think the quality speaks for itself. But I wanted to, you know, give these people whatever spotlight, whatever platform I can offer, and then tell the truest version of how they relate it to me.
0: Yeah, I think that's the best and the most fair way to do it. Along the way, though, did you receive any pushback or any type of challenge as you were doing this?
1: There's very little, I think I'm fortunate enough to you know, have an institution like The New York Times behind me. I think you know people take that name seriously. It opens a lot of doors, whether or not I was a good reporter and I think when you can open the door and then when you show up and you're thorough and you're accurate, you know I'd written a lot about these people before the book. I think that the trust just grows and grows, and I was also finding people really at the beginning right of their careers in a lot of cases like Little baby, like, you know, he may not be able to spell my last name, but he knows that I was that guy with him listening to his mixtape tracks, as they were deciding what was going to be on, you know, his second, his third mixtape. And he's seen me for years along the way, supporting that journey, you know, engaging with the work, like I said, and, you know, Meeting people at the beginnings of things, they remember, right? Who was there with them and who was supportive and who got it. And I think that that went a long way for me with my subjects. I think the other thing is like, you know, in the music industry, whether it's rap, you know, Southern rap, regional street rap, like there's always a white guy around, you know, (laughs) I talk about this in the book, whether it's a DJ, a producer, a manager, you know, this is a trope. (laughs) This is a tradition. And I think, you know, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it goes poorly, but I tried to always be above board and respectful in my dealings. But I think, you know, when you're riding around Atlanta with a rapper, and you look like I do, you know, someone's just going to assume that I'm either from the label or I'm from the fader, you know, something like
0: that. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But no, I think that Given this, as you mentioned, yeah, there's plenty of precedent for people having done this before. And yeah, I think the care that you bring into it with the book is clearly shown. And thinking about that, as you mentioned, just you driving around Atlanta, getting a feel for the vibe of the city and everything else, spending so much time there. How do you feel about the run that Atlanta is currently having and how this will continue? Because I think that like anything, people are always thinking of what is the next thing? How long does this last? We, of course, saw the East and West Coast rise and fall. What do you feel like the next decade or so looks like for Atlanta and hip hop?
1: I mean, the thing that's been so amazing about Atlanta, the reason it can be the subject of a book like this is because every time you would think it was over, they would just come up with a new thing. Right, so like you know, you think back to Outcast. You think back to So So Def. You know, you have the run of Ludacris, who becomes you know this crazy mainstream success story. You have Gucci and Jeezy, and the rise of Trap and Ti. You know, becomes this huge crossover star. And then you think that that's over. And then you have Krunk, and you have Lil Jon, and you think that's over. And then here comes Walk of of Flame coming up from under Gucci. You know, even someone like Gucci, he's helped birth three four micro generations of Atlanta rapper and you know someone like Young Thug comes out and you're like oh like this is too eccentric this is never gonna happen right like this is only for the real heads only for people listening underground and then all of a sudden he's on SNL right and he's in vogue and just over and over again you have these guys sort of break through with something that seems like it's too outre it's too avant-garde you know even Migos and their sort of like punk repetition you know people heard Bando and said like oh this is annoying like this going nowhere. And then all of a sudden, the whole radio sounds like that. So there's a part of me that does feel like, you know, this book is sort of capturing a contained era, right? The first Seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years of streaming and the intensity and the tragedy of the YSL indictment, like maybe that's a hard stop to this era. But I think you can never count Atlanta out, right? So like, you might not know exactly what's coming next. But there's always more kids like this, like coming up with something new, taking what came before them, putting like a twist on it, and then all of a sudden, it's on the radio, right? So like, Even me, like, I see, like, a real post-Playboy Cardi, you know, sort of experimental streak in a lot of these rappers. I think there's some drill influence coming into Atlanta. And I don't think the next generation has really revealed itself yet, but I'm very confident that based on the infrastructure that's there, based on the amount of talent, the artists who call it home both from there and not, like... I really think there'll be another wave and there's just always another wave in a way that even New York, you know, has struggled to bring the championship belt back that many times, you know, but I think, you know, Atlanta's regeneration has always been sort of its calling card.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that stands out about Atlanta too, and this is a bit of a, a sad way to frame it, but they've been able to withstand the jail time or the charges that happen for a lot of the rappers that are in their prime. Of course, we saw that happen with the West Coast in the 90s, Death Row, and you know everything with Suge Knight and Tupac. I think we saw that a bit with the East Coast as well. But Atlanta... Unfortunately, whether it's T.I., Gucci, like a lot of them have served time, but the city still has been able to still thrive in hip hop because there was always someone else coming through. And I think even more recently now with Gunna and Thug dealing with the Rico case and everything, who knows how that'll end up. But I think the difference for them and the city now, as opposed to other areas, is that even if, you know, let's say that they may not be able to make music or this hinders their rise. There are other folks that can continue to have the city continue to rise up in the music around it.
1: Yeah. And I think so much of this music, right. The music that's, come out of Atlanta in the last 30 years, like it comes from struggle, right? It comes from necessity and the things you're describing, whether it's, you know, violence, death, you know, the criminal justice, the weight of the state on these young black men, mostly, and they do tend to be men, especially in this scene, though, that's changing too. You know, I think when people feel backed into a corner, like art can come from that, right? So whether it's YSL directly, or it's the people they influence the people from their neighborhood who are going to fill that void, I think, You know, the people hear the urgency in this music, right? They hear the whether it's the joy or the pain, you know, there's a lot of feeling here. And I think, yeah, the tough times people bounce back out of that. And Trap is so much about that in general that I think it'll just continue to happen.
0: Definitely. And in the beginning of this conversation, you talked a little bit about how Hoop Dreams and that type of story was definitely an inspiration. And of course, that was nearly a three hour long movie, if I remember correctly, the time frame there. In terms of this book, already reading it, Maybe through the first few chapters, I was like, oh, this is going to get turned into some type of TV or series or movie or something like that. I could already I see that. that happening. Was that in the back of your mind as you were thinking about what this could look like? Obviously, I'm sure you're so focused on the book. But were you as you're thinking about the inspiration? Were you thinking about multimedia adaptations?
1: You know, I wasn't as much as I should have been, right? Otherwise, I would have been recording my audio better to turn it into a podcast to then turn it into a doc series or whatever it is. I'm very much like a print writer, right? Like I'm a newspaper reporter, I don't even think about images, really, as much as I think about words. And yet, like, So much of my influence, like, you know, Hoop Dreams was always the sort of North Star of this, but like, I'm a huge consumer of television and and film and, and stories of all kinds. So I knew I wanted the scope of the story to at least have that potential, right? To feel grand, to feel cinematic, to feel like it was about a time and a place and characters, which I think, you know, is often easier to do in a visual medium. So I had it in mind, but... I was really too focused on just getting the words down on the page and getting the material I needed. I hope you're right. And that now that this thing exists, right, this big book, like you said, Hoop James is a three hour movie, and this is like the book equivalent of a three hour movie. It's almost 400 pages. So it has that sort of epic quality. And I think there is, you know, hopefully more to mine there, not necessarily in recreating the stories that I've already captured, but in that essence and that spirit and and the way that Atlanta sort of goes in waves and goes in cycles.
0: I hope there's a way to be able to capture that visually as well. If you could handpick any director you would want to lead up a project on Rap Capital, who'd you pick?
1: Oh man, all time. I mean, this is a tough one. Look, I mean, what Donald Glover and Hiro Murai have done with their Atlanta series—you know—it's much more surreal than this. It's fictionalized, but the parts of it that are based, you know, more on Earth and more in the music industry, like, are just captured so well. I think hero as a director specifically, was able to you know, all the aerial shots, like the highways, the roads, the woods, like that version of Atlanta is really seared in my mind. And I, you know, I know they've done their version, but I think there's more to do. But then there's like the younger generation, right? Of video directors and stuff that I'm just waiting to be able to see their worlds on a larger scale. You know, someone like Spike Jordan or someone like Dapps who have their hand in, you know, Key Motion, like people who have their hand in a lot of the visual representation of this music on YouTube. And I think... I would love to see what they would do, right? I would love to see the present day music video director's version of Belly, right? In Atlanta, like Belly, one of my favorite, you know, top five favorite movies ever and has that sort of that music video quality to it in a lot of ways, but then blown up for the big screen. Like I want some of those guys to have a canvas like that to paint on.
0: Yeah, that's a good answer because I think that, especially the hero one, because I think that... Atlanta as a TV show does capture so much of it and you're right the episodes that are set in earth and not the surreal you know messages but yeah the ones that are set in earth do capture a lot of the intricacies about music industry and I think the reality which is I think something you do in the book as well I also think that some of the newer music video directors too just given the world that they're capturing do so much of that well too and I think Having that is key because, of course, some of the more established names have a picture of Atlanta, but it may be more relevant to that you know, LaFace era of Atlanta, which, while very impactful, isn't what your book is about.
1: Yeah, I think there's a new wave, right? And the people who are responsible for the iconography of this wave, you know, even the crazy run of Young Thug Videos. I think the director, BLB, is that his name? You know, just super... Super surreal sort of dream world stuff. But I want to see what those guys can do with the present day, given the budgets. You know, if they were given a a Hollywood-sized budget instead of a rap video-sized budget.
0: (laughs) Well, I will definitely be keeping an eye out for that because I feel like it's one of these inevitable things and it'll be fun to watch, for sure. Fingers crossed, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, before we wrap things up, I do want to go back to one thing about the music industry because you had tweeted something out I forget how long ago it was, but Punch from TDE had, shout out Punch, he had asked a question about when did the personalities become bigger than the music, and you had responded and said, well, there's some nuance here. Look at someone like Rod Wave, who is, you know, selling multiple times more than someone like Meg Thee Stallion, and I think Rod Wave is someone that, unless you know the music, you're not necessarily tapping in, versus Meg is someone that's performing at all the big award shows and has a lot of the big features. How do you make sense of that dichotomy between those examples and maybe what it says about where we are in the industry and how to make sense of it?
1: I think there's just been a real crumbling of the monoculture, right? Like before you would expect if somebody had a number one hit, if somebody had a number one album, everyone would know who they were, right? I would know, you would know, your mom would know, my grandma would know. They would at least have some vague idea, right, of who Shania Twain was or, you know, Katy Perry, whoever it may be, even Ed Sheeran, to name one of the last, I think, monoculture stars. Whereas today, everything is so fragmented, right? You write about this in your newsletter, whether it's streaming TV or movies or music, like everything finds its own little audience. And it's sometimes it's not even that little, you know, John Caramonica, the pop music critic here at the Times, and I collaborated on a piece, you know, I think probably almost four years ago at this point, saying like, your old idea of a pop star is dead. Your new idea of a pop star is, you know, it's Bad Bunny, it's BTS, it's Rosalia, who's not selling a ton of albums, but can pack out two shows at Radio City Music Hall without saying a word of English, basically, you know, and people are finding the Artists on their own, right? You think of NBA Youngboy, another one who's like basically the biggest rap artist we've had over the last five years. And he gets no radio play. He's never been on television. He's never played SNL. He has, you know, maybe one magazine cover, national magazine cover in in his past that happened when he was, you know, 16, 17 years old. And yet, like, the numbers on YouTube are bigger than Ariana Grande's, for instance, you know? So I think these audiences have just splintered. And there are a few people who permeate, right? personality-wise, you know, a Megan Thee Stallion or whatever, but often the music is somehow divorced from that, right? Like, I think there's far more people who know these next generation stars from being in commercials or, you know, Bad Bunny in a Corona commercial or whatever it is, then can sing one of their songs word for word. And I think that's fine. You know, I think that a lot of artists have found freedom in that, right? I keep coming back to artists who sing in Spanish primarily, like before it would be that to cross over, you had to change, right? You had to start singing in English, at least somewhat like a Shakira or whatever it is, but now that's no longer a prerequisite, because your audience is going to find you on Spotify, they're going to come to your shows, they're going to buy merch. And even if you're not getting played on Z 100, or, you know, top 40 radio, you can still have as much of a footprint. It's just not in that same, everybody knows the same 10 people way, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that the fact that someone like Bad Bunny has an album that's not in English, that has been on the top of the US charts for what, 30, 40% of the weeks of the year is incredible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that he is a celebrity, right? He is in films, he's in Bullet Train, he's in commercials, whatever. But I still think if you, you know, maybe it's different in New York, but if you went on the street and you asked, you know, your average 42 year old white woman who Bad Bunny was or to name a Bad Bunny song, it might not happen, but still selling out yankee stadium you know so it's this weird give and take of like what makes a hit these days what makes a superstar i think you know to bring it back like little baby is in this boat too like he's as close to we have i think in the new school as a mainstream superstar right headlining festivals You know he's performing at the World Cup. He's sponsor. You know Budweiser sponsors him. He's you know all sorts of commercials, and he's really moved into that upper echelon. But he's still not a celebrity, right? In the way that a Fifty Cent or a Jay Z is to everyone, but he is to a certain generation. So it'll be interesting to see if he can sort of push past that last barrier and become a household name. But he doesn't need it. Right. He doesn't have to be a household name to be the biggest rapper in the country.
0: Right. I think the part that I'm really fascinated by, too, is how this separation of, yes, you can be someone that is more known for personality than music, how that will translate to the labels they're signed to, which of course are in the business of people actually streaming and listening to your music. And they're not necessarily in the business of selling personality or selling brand deals, right? Like they're not getting the Pepsi deals or they're not, that's that's Pepsi doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Because obviously, I know that there are legal challenges and transgressions of maybe why someone like a Rod Wave or like an NBA young boy may not be getting asked to perform at the Grammys, right? Like, I think that's pretty easy to understand. Or even someone like a Summer Walker, who I think that does very well from a streaming perspective. But I think, you know, personally just right. is into the personality type to want to be all out there. Right? Yeah,
1: it has no interest in being a celebrity, but I think it's almost healthier, right, for some of these artists to be able to say, like, I've seen what happens on the fame side and I don't want that part. I just want to make my music and play for my fans. Like, I think that's becoming maybe more and more of a possibility where you can speak directly to your fans and not have to play the game, right, with the gatekeepers that might not actually be turning into anything at this point other than mindshare. So yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of stardom right now. And I think like the cult star, the like mass cult star, Tyler, the creator, you know, the way he built up his career. You've written about this over so many years. Like he doesn't have a smash hit. He doesn't have an old town road, you know, or a call me maybe or whatever it is. He doesn't have that defining record or pop cultural moment. He just has years and years and years of solid, growth. and People respond to that. And that you can pack arenas on that just as easily as you and maybe even more effectively than you can on the back of one or two massive hits.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Now, for sure. It'll be fascinating to watch. And I'll be looking out for your continued reporting and thoughts on this. Yeah, it's such a fascinating time in the industry. But Joe, it's been a pleasure, man. Hey, if anyone listening, if you are a fan of this podcast, believe me, This is a book. I can't recommend it enough. You'll enjoy it. But show for the folks listening, where can they get Rap Capital?
1: Rap Capital, an Atlanta story out October 18th, available wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, get an audio book should be out soon, your local bookstore. Yeah, hopefully you'll be able to find it. Rap Capital. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Awesome. Thanks for coming on and great work. This was really fun. Thanks. Really good. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups. Wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Traffilo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.